you don't know how much a thing is worth, you don't know how much to give for it. Right? Makes sense. If you don't know how much a thing is worth, you don't know how much to give for it. So we know that, we understand it. So here, here's an example, a PBS Antique Roadshow. I'm assuming some of you are, many, if not most, many of you are um, familiar with this. So here's the premise. Uh, you have people, they have a show that travels from place to place around the countryside. And people know that they're, they're coming, of course they do, and they bring their stuff. They bring their stuff to have it assessed, analyzed uh, by people who, who know what stuff is worth. And, and that stuff that they're bringing to, to the experts uh, might be something along the lines of maybe um, a collection of old baseball cards or maybe an autograph or an old doll or uh, some sort of frame piece of art. And it's been in the family. It's been sitting on a shelf. It's been in a drawer. It's been in the garage, whatever. And they bring it out and they put it in front of the, the expert and then that person tells them how much this thing is worth. And sometimes, this is what the point of the show is, because if it was all just junk, who'd watch it? So, and we don't, I don't know what the proportion is, but some of this stuff turns out to not be trash, but treasure. And then armed with that knowledge, the owner of this item, whatever it may be, he or she can then ask accordingly because they know what this thing is actually worth. If you don't know how much a thing is worth, you don't know how much to give for it. How much is Jesus worth? How much is Jesus worth? That's the answer, excuse me, the question before us here this morning. How much is Jesus worth? If he is just one option among many, then the answer is not so much right? If he's just one possibility, one hope among many, then okay, his value is kind of pressed down, lessened a bit. But if, if in fact he is our one sole hope, then he is of exclusive and infinite worth, and he is worth our forever all. He is worth our forever all got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're pressing on through this series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Uh, we've wrapped up chapter 25 last week. Uh, we are pressing into chapter 26, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew is the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels. Matthew 26, getting there towards the very end of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. It's on the screen. If you want to follow along in your Bible, please do so. Uh, listen carefully. This is the Word of God. Starting in verse 1, Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. 
And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. This time this morning has been well spent already. Time in your word and in prayer and in song and together. And we could just stop now and this would have been worth the drive. Uh, So we are grateful. We're also grateful for the minutes remaining in our time that we could spend in your word, spending in in this text. uh, We ask that you would make these minutes extraordinarily fruitful beyond our imagining. Oh, even beyond our deserving. uh, We ask that you would give us ears that would actually hear and lives that would actually uh, be shaped, uh, priorities, goals, uh, moved by your own for us. And um, we ask that you'd help us to see what's going on here uh, with the, the, the parties involved and who they are and what's driving them, what's going on, and begin to think through what that means for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, details are important, right? Details are important in a whole host of areas. That comes to, if you're a teacher, uh, grading and grammar and geography. Details are important. Details are important if you're thinking in terms of addresses and archery and architecture. Details are important if you're thinking in terms of carpentry, chemistry, or cooking. Right? Details are important. Details are important even if you're thinking of stamp collecting, stellar cartography, or oral surgery. The details are important. The details in reading and in study, especially, uh, it's all the more heightened depending on the importance of what you're looking at and studying. The details become all the more important. And so you're looking at Matthew's gospel and details become oh so important. So in verse 1, We read, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Okay, just stop there, full stop. What sayings? What is Matthew talking about when he says, when Jesus has finished all these sayings, what sayings is he referring to? He's talking about the Olivet Discourse, what we've been delving into over the last several weeks. Chapters 24 and 25, I cannot, I don't have the time to recap a half a dozen sermons, but uh, this is basically Jesus Upon uh, in the midst of what we refer to as Holy Week, there between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday on this Tuesday, Jesus on the Mount of Olives explaining to his disciples the certainty of his return, the uncertainty of the timing of his return, and the absolute vital necessity of our being prepared for his return in view of 
the certainty of his coming and the uncertainty of the timing, the necessity of our being prepared. Okay, imagine you're on site. You're there. You're hearing all this for the first time. How does that land on you? These sayings. You know, Matthew's just the way he described them. They're in verse 1. How does that land on you? It, it has to strike you as astonishingly bold. Jesus has just thrown the gauntlet down in front of you. If you weren't clear on who he believes himself to be by this point, now you know who he believes himself to be. He's saying, think with me, what he is saying and the implications of what he is saying. The kingdom of God, that is to say, the rule of heaven come down on earth. The kingdom of God has come, but it's not yet come in full. It is going to come in full when he returns. See the astonishing, bold nature of what he's saying, the implications of it? The kingdom is coming, and it's go- it, but it has not yet come in full. It's going to come in full, and it's only going to come in full when he returns. Why? Because he's the king. And you look at him standing there in this ragtag bunch of little people who are insignificant among the insignificant, and you say to yourself, huh? How can this be? What sort of kingdom is this? Assuming you're serious and assuming I can believe you, what sort of king and kingdom is this? Well, let's read again verses 1 and 2, as though that doesn't shake things up enough. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Clearly this king and kingdom is unlike any other. Clearly, this king and this kingdom is absolutely positively like any, unlike any other there has ever been or ever will be. He is saying that for him, victory will come through his defeat. Right? He is saying that our freedom is going to come through his being delivered up. That our forgiveness is going to come through his humiliation that our life is going to come through his death, and not just any death, but the worst kind of death imaginable at that time, the most painful and shameful death imaginable in that region of the world in that time in history, a crucifixion. This kingdom and this king is unlike any other. He is just exactly what he's been saying he is, who he is, all throughout Matthew's gospel, our Redeemer. Everything that the prophets had pointed to, everything that the priesthood had pointed to, everything that the kings had been pointing to, our redeemer, our rescuer from sin and its power and its penalty and one day its very presence, our redeemer setting us free from bondage. That's the kind of king that he is and that's the kind of kingdom he's come to usher in. He has revealed himself to us as our redeemer. And this passage is making very clear that we need to carefully consider our response to that Redeemer. He has revealed himself to us as our Redeemer. We need to carefully consider our response to him. This is a case study. 
the first 16 verses of chapter 26. This is a case study of three different parties. You see it there in your outline. The schemes of the officials, the gratitude of Mary, and the contempt of Judas. Three very different responses, case studies as to what does it mean to respond to this Redeemer. What does that look like? And what's driving these responses? Let's look at this in turn. So first, the schemes of the officials, verses 3 to 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So what's going on here? Who are these men? What do we know from history in terms of the, the chief priests and the elders of the people? Well, we know that they are representatives of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body there in the city of Jerusalem. They have been hostile to Jesus for some time. They are now increasingly wanting to find uh, they've reached the tipping point, wanting to find a way to be rid of him, but because Rome is in charge and calling the shots, they don't have the ability to legally execute him, so now they are biding their time, okay? That's who they are. Now, Caiaphas, this is important. Caiaphas, the high priest, who's named by named here in, in, the, in this text, who, who is he? Well, he is the high priest. We know from other sources and just reading of the other gospel accounts, that Caiaphas is a politically adept chameleon. He's willing to do whatever it takes to preserve his power, control, and, and influence. You see, by this point in Israel's history, again because of the Roman occupation, no longer is the high priest's office a lifetime appointment. It's an annual thing, renewable every 12 months. Yet somehow, Caiaphas has managed to hold this annual appointment for 16 years running. He would fit in very well in Washington, D.C. His ability to adapt himself to situations, slip himself into the corridors of power, and do and say the right things in order to maintain his power. Interestingly enough, quick side note, 1990, archaeologists discovered a tomb, a first century tomb just outside of Jerusalem. In that tomb, they discovered an ossuary. Now, an ossuary is a stone box that it was used in the time, it was a custom at the time where you put away bones. They would put human bones after the body had going to say disintegrated. That seems so, so terrible a way to put that, but I will just say to, you put the bones in the ossuary, and there they are stored for all memoriam. On this ossuary, just found right, first century ossuary, just found outside of the, the city gates of Jerusalem, was a name, Caiaphas. It is very likely, because of the other carvings and some other factors in play, that this is this guy, that this is this guy. Anyway, just a quick little aside. All right, that's who we are, who we have here, the chief priests, the elders, and Caiaphas. Why do they respond? How do they respond? And why do they respond the way that they do? So they see Jesus as a threat to the people. And you just cover it one level and come down to another. They see Jesus as a threat to the people. They see him as a heretic, a false teacher, leading people astray. And yet they also recognize they need to be careful because it is the Passover festival. And at Passover in Jerusalem at that time, you have the city swelling by thousands of people. 
and nationalistic fervor is boiling. And you've got the Romans, you've got a powder keg, and the last thing you need is a spark. And you can see that implied here. They don't want to provide a spark. They're trying to bide their time. So they see Jesus as a threat to the people, but they also see Jesus as a threat to their power. Because his teaching is diametrically opposed in many ways. There are a lot of similarities too. But in so many ways, the most significant ways, they see his teaching is diametrically opposed to theirs. And if he's right, or worse, if the people think he's right, where would that leave them? They see Jesus as a threat to the people. They see Jesus as a threat to their power. You think I'm overstating it? Go and read John's gospel. John 11, you read of Jesus' raising of Lazarus. Within just a few paragraphs, you move into John chapter 12, and this same Lazarus is now in the crosshairs of these same men. There's a plot to put Lazarus down, kill him, lest people, the word get out that this Jesus, this heretic that they think they've got to get rid of, they don't want people to know, oh, he's raising people from the dead. Such is their blindness. Such is their blindness and their desire to hold on to power. So you may have heard that Larry King is getting divorced. Larry King, right, the CNN longtime uh, interviewer. He's getting divorced. This is hardly new for Larry. Um, he's been married eight times, twice to the same woman. One would think, one would think that this would be an occasion, an opportunity for Larry to reflect a bit. Maybe it's not her eight times over. Maybe it's him. Here's a few quotes from a recent interview with the great interviewer. I'm sorry about the marriage. He's speaking of number eight. I'm sorry about the marriage. I'll always care for my wife, but it hit a point where we just didn't get along. We had a big age difference, and that eventually takes its toll it became a ships-in-the-night situation. Listen to this. I never cheated on my wives. My career always came first. Ladies, are you, are you enamored by that? <laughs> I mean, the implication of this is it's, it, okay, right. He never cheated on his wives. Why? Because he prized his career so much that he deemed a cheating on one of his wives to be a threat to his career, and therefore he never cheated on them because he prized his career over them so, okay, such as the blindness, the blindness. Sometimes we can be so blind, we don't even know how blind we are. Sometimes we can't see so much, so we see so poorly, we don't even know that we can't see poorly. And that's what you see here with these officials. And that's what the tyranny of idols does to you. You can't see. And you say, idols? These are religious people. These are Jews. They don't have, oh, yeah, yeah sure, they, sure, we do. What's an idol? An idol is anything that you put your trust and hope and security and identity in outside of the true and living God. That's an idol. And there's a gazillion possibilities. Work, family, security. Moral standards, doctrine. 
me read you this quote. This one is in, actually in your quotes and notes. It's the first one from Tim Keller. At the very top, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle but deadly mistake. So they gave themselves, we give ourselves, they gave themselves to this idol. And the tyranny of that idol, how does that work for you? You give yourself to it. What does it give in return? What's the case study here show? Self-righteousness, pride, arrogance, death. Death. Jesus has revealed himself to us as, his, as our redeemer. We need to carefully consider our response. That's the first case study. Here's the second one. Uh, the generosity of Mary. Let's read now verses 6 through 13. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. Okay, who is she and what do we know about her? Actually, a whole lot more than you may think. Uh, as we... Look at the other gospel accounts, the parallel accounts. For instance, John chapter 12, we come to realize that this is Mary. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. As you read, okay, who, what do we know about her? Now we know that what, who this woman is and what family she comes from. You read some other accounts, say like from Luke chapter 10, and you know that this is a woman who is profoundly attentive to Jesus, She's paying attention. She's locked in on him on ways that his disciples rarely ever are. She prizes, she treasures time with her Savior. That's who this is, this Mary. And she's present there at this dinner. They're in the home of, of a man named Simon. Now, we actually know very little about this Simon, Simon, just reading between the lines here, what, the way Matthew describes him, apparently had been a leper at one time in his life, had been healed by Jesus, and there they are in Bethany, this little village just two miles east of, of uh, Jerusalem, just on the other side of the, of the Mount of Olives. That's where this dinner is taking place, and there Mary is. How does she respond? How does she respond to Jesus? Well, she gives him the very best she has. She gives him the absolute best that she has to give him. For all practical purposes, she is giving him everything. Mark and John, parallel accounts, tell us that this, this um, ointment that she is pouring out upon him is pure nard, an expensive perfume oil. I believe it comes from India. It was imported uh, the other accounts tell us that this is worth some 300 denarii, which is about a year's wages. Likely, this was a family heirloom that she is breaking 
and pouring out upon him. And by the way, once you break that jar, you have to use it. There's no Tupperware. There's no seat. There's no, there are no Ziploc. And even if there was, it doesn't work. That the way this, the chemicals in this perfume work, you've got to, once you pour it out, you have to use it. Otherwise, it, it begins to break down. This is not what you do for an ordinary guest in your home. She is giving Jesus the very best that she has despite the pressures that she faces. The disciples oppose this. Did you pick up on that? They are, and not just passively, they are indignant, they are angry, and they're saying so. It's not just, you know, passive aggression, it's active aggression. Saying and putting it out there, and Jesus does what? Jesus stands up for her. He defends her in front of everyone. And please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying, oh, well, you know, poverty, poverty is just this intractable, never going away ill that you're never going to get rid of, so just don't bother with it. No, 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 no. I mean, we know Jesus loves the poor, cares for the poor, moved towards the poor time and time and again. And the Bible's filled with commands regarding this, the important priority regarding mercy ministry. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What he is saying here is this is a unique moment in time and history. The poor you will always have among you, but not me. Not me. And again, Mary's been listening. Mary's been paying attention in ways unlike any of the other disciples. No one else is getting it except for her. She knows who this is and what he's trying to do. And in this moment, at this party, she is thanking him ahead of time for what he's about to do for her and giving him the very best that she has, but for all practical purposes, all she has, despite the pressure that she is facing. That's the generosity of Mary giving the very best that she has. In many ways, she's doing exactly what Jesus speaks of back in Matthew 13 in the midst of a string of parables that, that Jesus tells. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and, and bought it. That's exactly what Mary is, is doing. How does Jesus respond to her response? How does Jesus respond to her response? He says this is a beautiful thing. It's the only time he describes anyone this way. What she has done for me is a beautiful thing. Thing. A quick aside, this is shocking in a first century context, the way he's treating a woman. And how often women in that culture were denigrated and dishonored and ignored. This is a real shot across the bow. Now, I would plead with the men in this room, let's not go back to that age. In the church and in a Christian home, more so than anywhere else in this community, 
Women should be honored and lifted up and listened to and prized. Let's not go back there. Let's consider what Jesus says. This is a beautiful thing. There's something else to be considered here. A true mark of beauty. Our culture has no idea what beauty is. It's all about the external. It's all about the flitting, passing things. And Jesus uses the word beauty to describe something deep within that is so much better. So, so very much better. All these things are also worth our keep taking into account. But back to the fact, what would it mean? His, His response, his response to her response. So one commentator described her response this way, as uncalculating generosity. I'm sorry if you're an accountant. I'm sorry if you're a bookkeeper. Just put that to the side for just a moment. He's saying that a, what a, a beautiful thing is actually uncalculating generosity. Now, what would that look like for us? Well, it has to start with seeing what Jesus is worth. Okay, he's worth everything. So he's worth everything. So then what should we be giving him? everything, holding nothing back. Now, I say that, and I tremble to say that. And you should be trembling to hear that, because you think about the areas of our lives that we have roped off. My reputation, my financial security, my seeming control, over my circumstances, which of course is an illusion and delusion anyway. But we have all these things, and I could go on for all afternoon, the the ways that we have our lives roped off. And Jesus is saying, no, it's a beautiful thing when you take the ropes down and give it all to me. Because that's what I'm worth. He's revealed himself to us as the Redeemer. We need to Respond carefully, considering this carefully. Thirdly, the contempt of Judas. Tight on the time. Um, Tight on the time. Do the best I can here. Verses 14 through 16. The contempt of Judas. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought out an opportunity to betray him. What do we know of Judas? Who was he? For starters, he was an apostle. This is shocking. Because you only think of Judas like at the end, the end of the story. You don't think about the beginning of the story. Judas was an apostle, personally selected, sought out, chosen by Jesus to be his representative, to go forth in his name, teaching, healing, driving out demons, just like the other 11. And oh, by the way, There was no suspicion among the other 11 as to that this was going to happen, and much less through Judas. He's an apostle. What else do we know about him? We also know he's a thief. And he's very good at hiding it. Go back and read John 12, the parallel account of all of this, and it becomes very clear. He He was the treasurer. He was the bookkeeper. He was the accountant. And he had his hand in the till, so to speak. 
So we know that he was an apostle. We know that he is a thief. How does he respond? Well, shockingly, with all of that in mind, he initiates the betrayal. Think of that. He seeks out an opportunity, a way to betray his master. Yes, this was accord with ancient prophecy. Yes, we know from the other gospel accounts he's under the influence of Satan. But those things said, here's the complexity, don't oversimplify this. He also does all this by his own free will. He is accountable for his choice. And this is what he chooses to do in the complexity of how all this works. Why? Except, see, he, he, he initiates the betrayal and takes such, so little to do it. It takes so little to do it. 30 pieces of silver is about four months' wages. It's really not that much. More importantly, when you go back and read through the Old Testament, 30 pieces of silver was the penalty you had to pay when your ox gored to death somebody else's servant or slave. Okay? So what is Jesus worth to Judas? Jesus is worth everything to Mary. What is he worth to Judas? The price of a slave. How does he see Jesus? With contempt. Why? Well, this is where we, we really we begin to bump our heads up against the ceiling, the wall, whatever it may be. No few scholars through the years have noticed this, though. Judas's name is a, his last name, so to speak, Iscariot, is a puzzling thing. We really don't know exactly what it's derived from, what it means. It's quite likely, however, it's related to a Latin word, Iscaria. Literally translated means the dagger men. It's quite possible that Judas was among these group of men at the time in first century Judea who were known to work their way through a crowd when there was a Roman official around and slide a blade in between their ribs. It's quite possible that Judas was a disillusioned revolutionary. He thought he was signing on for one thing with Jesus and got something else. He sees him contemptuously and sells him out for a little more than the, actually no more than the price of a slave. Here, let's, let's think about how to apply this. This is the contempt of Judas. This is his betrayal. This is his response. It's so sobering. I'm just going to end for time. These three things, warnings to consider. Warnings to consider as we weigh, this is who Jesus is, how he's revealed himself to us as the redeemer. Um, what do we do with that? What's the right way to respond? The warnings that we see here with Judas. One, where the disillusionment with God can take you. You have a non-negotiable in your life. God, if you don't give me X, I'm done. See what that did with Judas. And take that as a warning. Where disillusionment with God can take you. An obvious one here is the love of money, which truly is the root of all kinds of evil. And Judas is a living parable of that. 
for all history. So the dangers of being disillusioned with God, the dangers of the love of money, the dangers, by the way, also of confusing knowledge of God and a relationship with God. Now, you really can't have a relationship with God without knowledge of God, but those are two very different things. They're not always in the same place. The danger of confusing intellectual head knowledge, or what you think you know, by the way, because Judas wasn't even right in what he thought he knew, of God and a relationship with God. Yes, Christianity is a worldview. It is a way of seeing and thinking and living, but it is so much more. It is so, so much more. Think of how Jesus has revealed himself to us as the Redeemer. Oh, we need to be so careful in considering our response to him. I haven't said this. Before we pray, I do want you to notice this. Matthew is very intentional with how he puts this in front of us here in chapter 26. He doesn't do it like the other gospel writers do. When you read the other gospel accounts, what you realize is that they're taking a chronological approach to the officials and elders and Mary's response and Judas's response, but actually this anointing by Mary took place days before. He's not giving you a chronological in order as it happened perspective. He's, he's like a flashback is what he's doing, and he's sandwiching this, this account, this beautiful, according to Jesus, beautiful response of Mary in between these horrific responses of the chief elders, the chief priests and the elders, and Judas. Why? For emphasis. To draw our attention to this one beautiful response, the one way that is right to respond to Jesus, our King and our Redeemer. Let's go to him now in prayer. Lord, thank you. These were, these were real people making real choices. And they were driven in those responses and those choices by their heart towards you. What is our response? What is our response to you? What is our heart towards you? How do we see you? We ask that you would help us to wrestle with that question. Nothing could be more significant. Help us to prize Mary's response, giving the best, giving all. Help us to prize your response to her response. And Lord, would you please make that our own? Your kingdom is like no other. Our response to you should be like no other. We pray now in your name. Amen. We are continuing in our worship and the giving of these tithes and these offerings of thanks and praise and worship to our Lord. I'm going to read to you now these words from first, excuse me, yeah, first Timothy six, verses six through ten. Paul writes, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot